Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 31. We come to an important and familiar rule, the golden rule. And so we'll spend a few weeks in this passage here, verses 27 through 31 this afternoon, and then we'll look at verses 32 through 36, which is really a continuing and ongoing reflection upon that same golden rule. Um, but I did want to spend a little bit of time briefly clarifying something from last week as we spent time looking at Jesus' pronouncement of woes. And I made the case that I think he is, talk, he is talking there to the same crowd, that he hasn't transitioned his focus away from uh, the disciples to the broader crowd at this point. He's giving a warning to his followers, to his disciples. And so the question uh, arose um, that what is the response to the Lord's warning? What should be our response as Christians to the Lord's warning? Um, are we intended to take that warning personally? Are we intended to take them to heart? These woes, they're strong, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And we hear that language of woe, and we think, is this condemning those who struggle in these things, those who struggle to find their comfort and money, those who struggle to find their uh, rest or their, their joy in this life? Does that mean that we're condemned to hell? Maybe you feel convicted by your own tendency to find comfort in this life rather than God's promises. And so is it right, is it proper for you to question your salvation because of that? Is that the Lord's goal here to fill you with, with fear and doubt? I don't think it is. I think warnings of judgment for the believer are meant to drive us to repentance. And so when Jesus declared, woe is you, I think it's proper for us to respond like Isaiah did. Right? In Isaiah 6, verse 5, when he said, uh, he, he has this vision of the throne room of God and, and he sees the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And what did he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So is it proper for us to understand these warnings? I, I think it's, it's proper for us to take that warning in the sense of, of recognizing what it is we deserve. Recognizing in the same way that Isaiah did, that he stands before a holy God who has accepted him, not because of what he's done, but in spite of what he's done. Right, there's a response from someone who's been called by a holy God. That's the response we see in Isaiah. And so the recognition, I think, of what we deserve is in part how God preserves our faith, how he causes us to persevere. Well, in tonight's passage, this is an elaboration upon that last woe, uh, which is also parallel to that final beatitude. Remember, blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. That's the recognition that, that we're to, to consider it a blessing 
when we're persecuted. But then there's a woe to those for whom everyone speaks well of, right? Because it's a recognition that we probably aren't speaking the truth, right? If we never offend anyone, then we're probably fearing man more than we fear God, right? And so now he elaborates upon that, considering those who would want to harm us, how should we then live in this life? So he presents now the golden rule. And that's the context you have it. You've heard the golden rule is, is here at, in verse 31, as you wish the, that others would do to you, do so to them. But I think in the context, we might even say it like this, that do to your enemies as you would have them do to you. It's elevated here to be thinking in terms of those who are persecuting us, those who hate us, those who uh, want our faith to be destroyed. How do we respond to them? Well, this is where the golden rule is, uh, is spoken in Luke chapter 6. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging passage, as we oftentimes find in your word, to not only understand, but then to apply. And we are fully aware of our weaknesses when we, when we consider how far short we come of the standard that you've given us. And so help us to take this to heart. Help us not to dismiss this passage, to think that it's targeting someone else. Help us to respond appropriately to be challenged and to be encouraged and to be equipped that as we face challenges from those who maybe hate us or hate our Christianity, that we would have a proper attitude and response. And so, Lord, speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth this afternoon. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 31. Again, he's just finished his section of woes, and he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Amen. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Well, Jesus clarifies his audience once again. We've seen in verse 20 that he lifted up his eyes upon the disciples, and we don't see any transition away from that. And then in verse 27 here, again, he says, but I say to you who hear, he's speaking again to those who are hearing him, those who are following him. Here has a connotation of obedience, those who are wanting to learn and obey what he's saying. And there's a contrast at the beginning of that. And you say, well, what is he, what's he con contrasting? Well, I think he's, he's saying he's contrasting in subject here, not in the objects of his, of his message. Of course, you could read it in, the, in terms of him transitioning from 
the broader audience now back to his disciples. But I don't think the, the passage um, indicates that that transition has ever been made. The but here, just like in every, every other category, I mean, at the beginning of uh, verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. He's transitioning in subjects from blessings to woes, and now he's transitioning from woes to this golden rule principle. And the first command is love your enemies. And this love is, is not uh, friendship love. It's not the love of marriage. It's a, an agape love. It's a love that comes from God, that unconditional love. This is the, the highest term for love that the Greek has. And he's calling them to have that kind of love for their enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to your haters. Do good to those who hate you. Respond to their attacks with kindness. When they chastise you, don't send it back in their face. Don't retaliate, but do good. Bless your cursors, those who would curse you, those who would shout you down. You are to respond with blessing. And then lastly, to pray for those who abuse you. Verse 28, so there's four things here. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And if you could summarize that or, or pull, draw a principle from that, the point here is that love is not merely something we feel. In fact, you don't have to like someone to love them because love is an action. Love is something you do for them. It makes it easier if you like them. But you can love them. You can show a Christ-like love for someone that you don't really get along with. not something we feel, or at least not merely something we feel. Love can be something you feel, but it's more than that. It's something we do, and it requires a trust in God. Each one of, each one of these commands, right? You, you, you couldn't do any of them apart from the Spirit working in your heart to, to soften you towards your enemies. It would be impossible to do this on your own, and this is what sets the Christian apart, right? We are to be different. So personal retaliation is unchristian. To respond to an unkind word with our own unkindness is not Christ-like. And that's, that's where I want us to go. Before you soften the blow of these commands, before you try to say, well, what about in this case? Or what about that exception? What about if the person does this? We can all come up with some exception, and in fact, in a little bit, we'll look at some of those. Okay, so... So I'm not suggesting that these general principles, these general commands are to be taken literally in, every, in each and every situation, in every circumstance. Um, but before you try to soften it, consider how Jesus modeled his own obedience to these commands, right? He showed love to his betrayer, to Judas. He called Saul who persecuted him. And by persecuting the church, he says, why are you persecuting me? Calling Saul out of that state of 
rebellion and persecution to conversion. He, he, he responded uh, by doing good to those who hated him. He blessed those who were crucifying him and actually praised for them. You see this in Luke 23, uh, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Speaking of those who, who are in the process of killing him, he prays for their forgiveness. You see also in his parable to, of the Good Samaritan, it reveals this kind of radical, sacrificial love for our neighbor. And in fact, the, the hero of that parable is the one whom the Jews would have considered their enemy. And he, he takes the stance of a, of a neighbor and shows love to the man who's injured on the road. The Good Samaritan, again, reveals this kind of radical, sacrificial love for our neighbor. And in fact, we should be able to say and willing to say that our neighbor includes our enemies. That it's not just those who are kind to us. So that is how Jesus treats us. Right, our call is to imitate God's extravagant love. That's where this passage will lead. In fact, we'll look at it next week. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Right, so he's the, the standard by which this, this rule finds its application. We're to, to look to the way the father showed mercy to us. And because he was merciful to us, we can now show mercy to those who are our enemies. And so we remain in this world, I believe, to re relate God's love to the world. It's part of what God is doing through the church, displaying his own attributes to a watching world, showing his mercy and love through the way we treat them. And so one commentator said this, think of the best thing you can do for the worst person. Think about the best thing you can do for the worst person in your life and then do it. Don't just dream about it, but follow through on that. That's what Jesus is calling his hearers to. And he gives these four commands, and then he follows it up in verses 29 and 30 with some examples. Right, what does this look like? In verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer, uh, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So the disciples' behavior was to radically depart from a self-centered and hedonistic world, right? A, a world that retaliates against evil, that, that uh, it's the lex talionis, the, the rule of, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You do, if you hit me, I hit you. And it's personal retaliation. That was never the intent of the law in the Old Testament. But that was how it was practiced. And in fact, the Pharisees had, a, had their own rule of, of um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your fellow Israelites, but hate everyone else. And that's how they lived their lives. That's why the rebuke from Christ and the Good Samaritan was so convicting to them. That's why they didn't, they despised him for telling that story. 
So this first one is don't retaliate. He gives this image of someone striking you on the cheek. And it says, offer him the other also. Well, the parallel in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is an Im- image of, you know, they would typically be right, the person would be assumed to be right-handed, striking on the right cheek, which means you need to backhand the person. It's an insult. And so this is an insulting kind of abuse. When you take that kind of abuse, he says, do not retaliate in like manner. But doesn't mean that in each and every case we are to offer the other. Well, listen to, or look at the example here in the life of Jesus. John chapter 18, verses 22 through 23. But when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So if this is to be literally interpreted, literally, literally understood, then Jesus should have turned his face and said, strike me on the other side now. But he doesn't. So, so if we want to interpret this literally, then we have problems later on. And in other passages we could look to. I think the best commentary for this passage is Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21 where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, so uh, going on to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at there. Be kind to those who wish you harm, those who want to do evil to you, don't take personal vengeance upon them. Right? Leave God, leave that in the hands of God. And in fact, we know from the Psalms that we can pray for God's justice. Right? There's imprecatory Psalms, and they're not inappropriate for us to pray. But the problem would be if we said, well, because David prayed for this, we can actually enact it. And David would have never done that. Right? He paid, prayed for deliverance from uh, Saul, who was bearing down upon him and chasing him. And what happened when he had opportunities to kill Saul? He never took it into his own hands. In fact, he felt distraught when he just snipped some of his garment. Right? He felt like he had dishonored his king. So we have principles here in Scripture of those who, who did not take personal vengeance, right? but uh, entrusted it into the hands of God, entrusted the process of justice in his hands. So the next section, it says, do not withhold, or the one who takes your cloak from you, and that language there of takes is, you could say it's stealing, right? Don't prevent a thief. That's, that's the blunt way of saying it. And I think what he means here is don't, uh, you know, trust God for delayed justice. Don't don't put yourself in, in, in jeopardy here um, when, when someone's taking something from you. In fact, be willing to be wronged even. That doesn't mean you can't call the authorities. You can't follow proper, proper protocol here. 
but it might mean you don't um, exacerbate the problem. You know, you don't you don't get your own revenge. You don't steal something of theirs back. Trust God. Vengeance is His. Then you get to the next one, the next example of giving to everyone who begs from you. Again, that sounds impossible. Give to every beggar. In fact, the apostles didn't do that. What happened when they had an opportunity in Acts chapter 3? When someone was begging the apostles, they said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. And so maybe that's the answer. We just don't carry cash on you. You know, so when someone says, hey, can you give me some, some money? Or, you know, I need some gas. You, you say, well, you know, I, I, sorry, I don't, I don't have anything on me. Do you, do you accept credit card? Yeah, I need some. No, unless you accept credit card, I really can't help you. No, that's, that's not the point here, but, it, but it's, to, it's to be generous, right? In, in fact, in the passage, it's related to lending without expecting um, interest. Verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. In fact, not even expecting interest, but, but giving with the expectation that some may not be able to repay you. And again, when you go back to the parallel in Matthew 5, verse 42, you see the same idea. Give to, the, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he's relating this idea of, of being generous and lending and not extorting people. And disciples are called to be generous and compassionate. Um, again, you take this literally, and, and, and what you have is people taking advantage of the system. As soon as someone finds out that you give to everyone who asks, you're going to be flat broke. Right? So I think the, there's other principles as well that we could point to which, which speak of being good stewards of the resources God has given us, and to use those resources wisely and to expect someone to be held accountable for the gifts that they've received. So be generous, yes. But there, it's, it's proper and it's okay to expect them to not continue to have to live off of your generosity. The last thing is to, to not demand the return of your stolen goods. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. You do have a, an, a good illustration of this in Les Miserables, the very opening of that book with Bishop Myriel as Jean Valjean gets released from prison and he has nowhere to stay and never, everyone finds out he's a prisoner, so they close their door and they say, sorry, you can't, we, got, we got no room for you. Finally, someone says, hey, there's, there's a bishop in this town and he'll give you a place to, slip, to, to sleep. So he goes in, he's treated with incredible hospitality. He's given a, a wonderful meal. They, br- they bring out the best silver in the house and he's eyeing it like, this could probably get me somewhere. This could probably uh, sell for some, some good coin. And so in the middle of the night, he gets up and he takes the silver as well as two candlesticks and he runs off and he's caught He's captured and they bring him back and they know he has stayed at the bishop's house. And what does the bishop say? I gave him to him. 
He can, he can have those. But then he whispers into Jean Valjean's ear, I've bought you. I've bought your soul. Repent, basically. Turn from your wicked ways and begin to serve the Lord. Respond to this mercy that I'm showing you in a way that reveals a transformed life. Right? And that's what the rest of the book is about. It's a beautiful, amazing book that you all need to read. <laughs> um, but think about that illustration happening in real life. That's what Jesus is calling us to. You say, I can't do that. You can absolutely do that. Right? None of this is meant to eliminate accountability. Um, in fact, he'll tell them in, in a, later on about rebuking others right, and taking the speck out of your brother. First of all, deal with your own sin, but then you should be able to discern uh, the faults in your brother's eye. Right? When, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck in your own eye when you yourselves do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. So in fact, contact, you know, going to your brother and, and helping them with sin is a good thing, but you first got to deal with it yourself. Make sure that you don't got a plank sticking out of your own eye as you're dealing with the speck in theirs. Again, there's not, so this accountability, this idea of accountability is appropriate. And these examples, these I would say they're golden rule examples. Um, don't restrict self-preservation and protection of personal property. But the idea is that we would love people more than our stuff. That we would use every opportunity we have to point them to the grace that we've been shown. And, and what more powerful way do we do it than when we we're in the process of being wronged ourselves. When we can respond with humility in that situation, then it, and it shows the love of God that, that can't, be, can't be challenged. And so he finally states this principle here, the golden rule in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Again, the parallel in Matthew Chapter 7, verse 12, it actually follows where Jesus is, is teaching about God's generous response to our asking. So again, we see the principle is he's, he's applying something that he himself has already shown to us. Right? Jesus is not saying, go and do this. He's saying, follow me. Do as I've done or do as I'm about to do in my life. And as you uh, later on, we'll see. So the rule, this golden rule has, has been shown to exist previously. In fact, you have it stated similarly in, in Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verse 18. Let me just turn there real quick. Leviticus 19, verse 18. And you shall not... That's chapter 18, 19, 18. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so you have the rule beginning back in Leviticus, um, stated pretty clearly there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and, and in fact, in other religions, it's been represented and presented in a, in a negative form. Do not do to others what, what you don't want them to do to you. Right? And so here, Jesus states it positively. And he also knows that it can't be obeyed apart from the help of the Spirit. Right? That we must depend upon the Holy Spirit as we're thinking about how we would apply this rule. As Paul says in Romans 7:18, "For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out." Well, here, here's the, the rule, and I think we'd all admit that our desire doesn't always match, right? that we're unable, we feel, to even carry out that rule. And we question whether it's consistent even with the imprecatory psalms, as I've mentioned earlier. Well, those are judicial uh, rather than personal rules. That is, that is when, when God's holiness, when his glory is being condemned by the nations, that we cry out to him for, for his justice. Right? They represent actions of, of a theocracy even, calling upon the God of justice to mete out his punishment upon those who seek to diminish his glory. And so it's very appropriate for us to pray in that way. But the golden rule doesn't eliminate punishment. It doesn't eliminate the imprecatory psalms. But it says that on a personal level, we should be willing to be wronged so that we can display, instead of the wrath of God, that we can display his love and mercy. And so many of us, I think, spend most of our thoughts trying to attempt ways to shave off the sharp edge of this rule. Right? But stop and consider just the simplicity of these words and the power that, that these actions would have if this is how we responded when someone was wronging us. Could you imagine a world where that's the common ethic? Right? Where, you're, where you do to your enemies as you would have them do to you. Where you treat them with love and kindness when they curse you. Where you pray for them. So the golden commandments, the golden examples, the golden rule, you know, regardless of, of the exceptions to that rule, I think we miss Christ's point if, if it's anything other than a strong exhortation to show God's love to everyone, including our enemies, which would, would have been directly contrary to what the Pharisees would have told Jesus' disciples. Again, who among us can say that we live like this? Who among us can say that the, that the golden rule is our daily ethic? Even in our homes. Right? We fail, but praise God that we have a Savior who forgives us when we fail. Right? This passage reveals the generous character of God, which was on its full display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He satisfied that golden rule perfectly when he died upon the cross while we were his enemies. And he showed us mercy and compassion 
when we least deserve it. And so we should be encouraged to go and do likewise by the Spirit's empowering for the glory of God. Let's pray.